0: Hello, good evening. My name is Andy. I am one of the pastors here. Um, We are in the summer in the psalm series. It's nearing the end of the summer, and it's nearing the end of our summer in the psalm series. Today, we're in psalm 13, and the psalm was written by David in the midst of great grief and on the edge of great suffering. I would ask you today to consider whether or not you desire connection. And I would propose that most of us do. From the first day of college classes, as we eagerly desire to sit next to that cute girl or that nice boy, um, through our first job, where we're hanging out near the water cooler or the lunchroom, just waiting to see if anyone else happened to pack their lunch that day, we're looking for connections. From going on a long uh, trip with our spouse to reconnect and rekindle a bit, we're looking for connections. Whether we're hanging out at old bars with good friends talking about nothing in particular until one in the morning. We're looking for connections. We as humans desire to connect with other humans. We also desire to connect with God. Um, In particular, when we're suffering, when we're going through great anxiety, we are desiring, we desire as humans to connect with God. Remember that one time Hopefully not more than once. But that one time when your soul seemed in a single moment to crumble in your chest with agony and to leap out towards God in a cry for connection. Maybe you've suffered a lot during your life. Maybe you've only suffered a little or have yet to suffer greatly. But in that one single moment, everyone, atheist, ardent for years, or um, foolish, arrogant, agnostic we all desire to connect with god and in that one moment when we suffer we will reach out for god to god for connection when we suffer we are human we we become base we become equal with all other humans who suffer whether you're rich or poor when you suffer it is the same whether you're old or young when you suffer it is still suffering and in that suffering we are real When we suffer greatly, we are in our most helpless state. And even the ardent advocate against the Lord will cry out to God for connection. I would submit to you today that David in this psalm also desires connection. He is anxiously, greatly suffering. Due mostly to his anxiety about what is about to happen. He is despairing. Immensely despairing. He pens this psalm. Out of profound potential grief and worry, he does a howling, if you were, for connection to God. And as he does that howling, he finds his hope with God. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Please stand with me as we read Psalm 13. How long, O Lord will you forget me forever how long will you hide your face from me how long must i take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day how long shall my enemy be exalted over me consider and answer me o my lord my god light up my eyes lest i sleep the sleep of death lest my enemies say i have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because i am shaken But when I have trusted in your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. These are the words of God. You may have a seat. I'm going to pray. Dear Jesus, you are king. Please speak to us today where we are at, wherever that may be. May our hearts hear the truth and the beauty and the goodness of the gospel today and be encouraged and brought into better relationship with you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my God, you are a rock and you are our redeemer. May we hear what we should hear today and leave what we should not. You are a good king and we are thankful for that. Amen. So today in this psalm, what we're going to talk about is a question of anxiety. A pleading cry in prayer, and a heart song of faith, and then we're going to talk about how these things all connect into a pattern of the gospel that David gives us to deal with anxiety, to deal with suffering. David starts off the psalm with no less than four howlings, no less than four how longs. He says, "How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take my own counsel?" How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He seems to be anxious about what is happening, about his current state of no connection to God. Yet we know that David is a man after God's own heart. And he was called this by God, not because he was the captain of the football team, not because he was prom king, and not because he could jump the highest or think the smartest, nor did he have the most successful business, but because he was a repentant man seeking God. The subtitle of David's life was that he was a man after God's own heart. And this came not from the greatness of David, but from his deep, deep understanding of the gospel. This understanding of the gospel starts with the admission of need. The how long, or the howling, right? How long, howling. What a great English axiom. How long will I be stuck in the place that I'm at? David is speaking from human weakness. And this is the human weakness that we all share. When we are suffering, when we are anxious, we are human just like David. The Bible has a reason for this anxiety, a reason for this suffering. It's a small three-letter dirty word that I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to use in school called sin. Sin is the brokenness of a relationship with God. Sin is the competition of our own will against God's will. Not that we would ever win, but we try, and that is sinful. Sin is the gasoline behind all the flames of pain and suffering in life. My sin, your sin, everyone else's sin. It has effects for the life that we lead, and it has effects in the planet. The animals, the air, the rocks, everything. Sin affects everything. And out of that, everything that has been marred by sin, David is howling. David gives us an example of a person in the Bible, not a God man, not someone above us, but someone just like us. David is anxious in the same sinful way that we become anxious in our lives. So when we look at David's howling, his desire, desire, desire for connection with God, his anxiety, we should see an opportunity to follow his pattern for dealing with his anxiety. We should see and feel that as David has a connection to us and as he deals with his pain and anxiety, we can learn to deal with our pain and anxiety in the same way that he does. He's going to walk us through this in this psalm. Though it is short, it is packed with the gospel. So David has a pleading cry of prayer next. He starts out with the howling, the desire to connect with God, the anxiety. But then he goes in verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Consider and answer me. David is not demanding of the Lord. David is pleading. He goes from his anxious place of desire for connection with God, a desire for help, and he takes that into heartfelt prayer. Our prayer. One thing to remember as we read the Psalms is that these are not textbook instructions for life. This is not written in the same way that you would follow a direction for how to put together an Ikea table. This is written as an art form. David was an artist among artists. David was intelligent. David knew the potential for art. If we look at David's art here in the Psalms, and specifically Psalm 13, what we see is a reflection of the culture that Christianity creates. When we look at all art throughout all time, what we can see is a reflection of what that culture holds beautiful, truthful, and good. And in this Psalm, David tells us what he thinks, what God thinks, because it is wholly inspired by the Lord, about God. Dealing with anxiety. I would charge you, if you are an artist, small tangent, to remember that as I was in art school, I studied graphic design and sculpture. There is bad art. As much as your art teachers would tell you there is no bad art, it's all about expression. Just get it out there. Put it on the canvas. Take whatever clay you have and make something. Just feel it. Oh my gosh. I got so many bad grades because I just sat there and argued in our theory classes. I just think that's a bunch of baloney. There is bad art because there is something that is beautiful. Beauty is not subjective, it is objective. And we get it based on who God is and what He has done. That's how we find beauty. So David knows that. And as he's writing this psalm, as he's writing a song that is to be sung, he knows and God uses the fact that as we sing, we connect our intellectual head with our feelings, with our gut. We get to the heart as we sing and we can understand that with the words that we are singing mean things and the emotion that we sing with, it's this weird magical place that God has given us in song. There's a reason that we sing here tonight and we don't all get up and start painting together. Regardless of whether or not we're good painters or bad painters or good singers or bad singers, God has had given us a unique and, like I said, just a magical way of connecting to Him and having Him transform us through truthful songs. So, to finish the tangent, artists, use your art to tell truth. If you have a critique on your technique, change it, adapt, be humble, but use your art to preach the gospel, to tell truth, beauty, and goodness. Do not simply express, but take responsibility for what you're expressing. David does that here. If he stopped with these first two verses, how long, how long, how long, my art teachers would praise it. They would love it. Oh, it's so raw, it's so real, it's so empty. If this were the beginning and end of the psalm, it would just be complaining. It would just be a recollection of anxiety. There'd be no hope. There'd be no truth. But David continues. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Consider and answer me. Light up up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David is petitioning God. He's doing something that I don't think we do super well. He's using an anxiety, an anxious place, and taking it immediately to the Lord. The fact is that God is engaged in our world. We believe that God literally, and not just spiritually or figuratively, holds the world together. Every atom in the chair that you're sitting on. Every wave of sound that is coming out of my mouth. Every light, every pencil, every person. God literally is holding everything together. David knows this. It's recorded in Colossians. God says, For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. God made invisible things. Just think about that. That's really cool. Invisible, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. David knows this. That's why when he has at his most anxious and bitter and desperate spot, he goes to the one who is holding the world together. He goes to the living God. He goes to the God who is engaged in the world and actually can change things. God, Jesus, is not just a spiritual God. He is a physical God. He is a real, tangible God. So David approaches God. Consider my plea. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. He does this not arrogantly like we so often do, like I so often do. He does it humbly. The difference is that arrogance comes with entitlement. Whereas the humility comes with submission to God. We're working through this with my little two-year-old girl right now. Her name is River. And we're talking through what it looks like to ask me, Papa, for a Sparkleberry Princess doll. Pony. Best dollar 58 i I've ever spent in my life. She loves them. She wants them all the time. She loves them. They have glitter all over them. There's like 700 colors. They're, they're just a mess. She loves them. We ask her at dinner or at different times during the day to put them down. River, it's time to do X. It's time to go take a bath. We need to put Sparkleberry Princess Pony down. What happens? Well, she immediately whines and complains because she loves Sparkleberry Princess Pony. But as she whines and complains, she gets that pink, precious little lip quivering, and she comes out and says, oh, I want it. It's mine. And I look at my wife, and she's like, oh, we can't take it into the tub. Glitter will get over her. It'll get her hair. And I don't want glitter anywhere, so that would be way much more worse than it is now. So we are definitely not taking Sparkleberry Princess Pony into the bathtub, River. We cannot do it. I'm sorry. I love you, but we must stop. And River, I will Absolutely spoil you with ten more Sparkle Princess Berry Ponies. But you must not act spoiled. This is the the liturgy, if you will, that we go through when she starts to complain. We talk through your sinning and we need to repent and I will forgive you and Jesus will forgive you and he has forgiven you. But River, I will absolutely spoil you. But you must not act spoiled. River is learning to trust me that I have her good in mind. That I want what is good for her. Not necessarily what she wants, but what is good for her. And she's learning to trust me that I will also give her gifts. Even though she does not deserve them. There's no writing in the sky or in any tablet in the world that says that I owe my daughter a Sparkleberry Princess Pony. Much less a pink and a blue one. But I love her and I want to give her those things. In the same way... That I want to give my daughter a Sparkleberry Princess Pony. It took like like two weeks to figure out what it was that she was saying when she described this thing. In the same way that I want to do that, God wants to give us good gifts. He is not a God that gives us a snake when we ask for a piece of bread. He is a God who gives us good gifts. And we are learning, as David is learning through this psalm, to rely on the Lord, but also to petition him in hopes that he will give us good things. God wants us to come to him and ask him for things. David has this heart as he petitions the Lord. And we see it in the very next verse. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. What are your eyes? Your eyes are the window to your soul. That's not in the Bible. But when you see someone evil in a movie or a show, what's the first thing they cut to? It's their eyes. When you see a beautiful little child like my daughter what's the first thing that's beautiful it's our eyes the eyes are where we have life yes life is in the blood but it comes through in the eyes light up my eyes david knows that he must find life again he's in an anxious spot but he must find life again and so he says light up my eyes lest i sleep the sleep of death lord you are life You give breath to everything that is alive. Please, I implore you, Lord, consider my situation. Humbly, not arrogantly, not expecting things from God. Not even, I would submit, expecting what he wants from God. But just expecting God to move. Just asking God to help. Light up my eyes. I implore you, help me in this situation. Change it, if you will. When he is anxious and suffering, David does not respond. Lord, get me out of here. I can't believe you did this to me. Good night. I'm sitting in traffic again. That's the fourth red light. How entitled. He does not say, hey, I don't deserve this. I'm the king of Israel. You said that I had your own heart. I don't deserve this. What are you doing, Lord? I'm anxious. Fix it. He does not say, well, God must be caring for someone else right now because he's certainly not caring for me. But how much do we have the audacity, how often do we have the audacity to approach the maker of heaven, of earth, and of everything in between? With our complaints, with our expectations, our desire for entitlement and change. Good night. Do we not know who God is? He is God. We are not. David works through that and understands that. And another psalmist later in Psalm 119 affirms this petition of God and the petition of God in the hope of truth and life that is in God alone. We see the heart behind light at my eyes in Psalm 119. It says, My soul clings to dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O oh Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run the way of your commandments, for you set my heart free. That psalmist understands that his only, only hope that he has. In the anxious moments, when his soul clings to dust, is life according to God's word. David believes this, and he believes this in the midst of danger. Look back to verse 2. How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Again in verse 4. Lest my enemy I have prev- say that I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David also, again, pleads in this position because he knows that evil is real. There's many themes, sorry, there's many themes that follow through much of the Psalms. Two of the themes we're talking about tonight, one is the gospel and how we deal with sin. The other is that evil is real. Israel used to sing these Psalms. Many of them are about defeating evil and God winning. David does not feel like God is winning. We often in our own lives do not feel like God is winning. David acknowledges his own distress and pleads with God to consider his position and help because it feels like evil is winning. Yet the God of the Bible has a plan. And we know that in the end he wins. But do we believe that he will not only win in the end, but is winning now? In the same way that the kingdom is coming and has come, God is winning and has won. The cross changed not only things spiritually but things physically. The cross literally changed everything. Jesus is winning, and I submit to you again that David experiences this distress and knows that God is winning, he brings himself through prayer. God brings him to a place where he understands that, he, that God is winning he pleads in anxiety for God. To win, he wants God to change the life now. Often, we as 20th century American Christians relegate God to the spiritual realm. We relegate our Lord who made us physically and who is spirit but created and came in a physical form as Jesus. We relegate him to his spiritual realm and ask him to change spiritual things, but we do not plead with him like David is here to change. Real things. David knows and acknowledges that evil is real, and he asks God to do something. Isaiah 62 6 and 7. God is saying to us, He's speaking to Israel and Jerusalem. He says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You, us, You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest. Give God no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord God wants us to beg him for transformation of our own hearts, of our friends, of our family, but also of the world. Because evil is real. Evil comes from sin. If you acknowledge sin, you must acknowledge that evil is real because it is the action of sin. Chesterson, the great Chesterson, said that the one glimpse of paradise on earth is to fight a losing cause and not lose it. When it feels like evil is winning, and it often does feel like evil is winning. Five minutes on Facebook, two minutes on the news, and it feels like evil is winning. One moment in suffering, and it feels like evil is winning. But What does God do? What does he teach us through this, through David? He says, consider and answer me. God wants us to beg him to change us and to change things. We see this again with Jesus in Matthew 15. Jesus is talking with the Canaanite women. Now, remember, the Canaanites had hundreds, if not thousands of years. No, hundreds of years, maybe 1,500 years of fighting with the Israelites. Of coming head to head as enemies. So we're in Matthew 15. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out to us. She's a nuisance. Get rid of her. Canaanite woman, come on. Seriously, get her out of here. Jesus answered to the woman I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel but she came and knelt before him saying Lord help me Lord help me and he answered it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs she responded yes Lord yes Lord yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table then Jesus answered her With disciples' mouths gaping. Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Healing is a physical thing. Her daughter was healed instantly. Great is your faith. This woman humbly sought an enemy. The Lord Jesus. Because he was the Lord and she needed help. She understood pleading to Jesus. She understood begging the Lord. It's not a one time. It's not five minutes before I go to bed. It is consistent. It is earnest. It is heartfelt. It is real. She wanted him to help her. How often do we try to fix our own circumstances, to fix our own problems instead of fixing ourselves on Jesus? When we fixate on something, we fixate. We do not deviate. We look in the eyes. We look at and we do not move. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, are we begging Him? Are we praying? Are we like this Canaanite woman who sees Him as Lord and sees that He is the one who can change things? Verse 3 and 4 are the petition of the Lord in prayer. Prayer for God to act. I do consider again the infanticide that is going on right now. The thousands and thousands of babies that are killed around us all the time. I think of it as a nightmare. This is our uh, it, the, the, the generation, not two generations ago. There was hundreds of men that went to jail because they refused to acknowledge abortion as legitimate. I don't know your own personal history or feelings on abortion, but I will tell you that God values life. Whenever it starts and whenever it ends, God values life. And less than two generations ago, there were men who went to jail because they thought that what God valued, we should also value. Yet I, in my arrogance and sin, barely consider those babies worth my prayers. But at the same time, in that one hand, and in the other hand, I hold that I think it's terrible and should end. But I do not pray about it. The men that went to jail prayed about it. They took their prayer and made it not only prayer, but action. I have a friend from high school named Mogar, who on his Facebook wall a little while ago, he posted, he said, one hand working is worth 10,000 hands praying. Mogar does not submit to God. He prays to a dead God. He he, he actually does. He's a pagan. He literally prays to dead gods who cannot do anything for him. He doesn't understand what God tells us through the psalm. And that is that as we ask him to consider our circumstances, to consider our world, that he will move. Often, God does things that we don't ask him to do. Example, the cross. (laughs) How many of us actually asked God to die for us on the cross? Good, no hands. All right. God did it anyway. Jesus wants us to pray to him for our pain and for our sin and out of anxiety to take us out of that anxiety because that is when we are at our best, when we are relying on him. Paul recalls this and says in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, but Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul responds, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. All of us boast. All of us like to get excited and talk about things. When was the last time we boasted about our weakness? When was the last time we put forth our failure to show God's mercy, God's grace? Grace is getting what we do not deserve. When we put forth our failure and God uses his grace to work through that, we are at our best. We are at our most manly, our most womanly, when we are weak. When it is not me standing up here, but Jesus that you are hearing. When it is not you working at your job, but Jesus working through you. When it is not us pleading on behalf of those who cannot fight for themselves but Jesus working through those prayers. God wants us at our best. And it's not health and wealth. Because our best is not when we think it is. Our best is when we're broken. He wants us at our best, and if we believe that He is Lord, we and that we are not, we must acknowledge with David that we are at our best when we are relying on the cross. Not only for our most extreme suffering, but for our daily struggles as well. So David has how long? The anxiety is real. He feels it. He knows it. He expresses it. Then he asks God to consider his situation, as we so often should. He does it humbly. And then what? But, verse 5, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because He has dealt bountifully with me. How does this psalm, so short, seem so bipolar? He starts off in the worst place and ends with, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. I will sing to the Lord. Back to earlier. Singing, what does it do? Singing truth connects our head and our heart. Our head and our emotions. Our intellect and our feelings. Singing truth helps us get to a better place, closer to Jesus. The gospel uses that process. David goes from howling to hope in four verses because he understands the gospel. And in this gospel, there is a brief pattern. We acknowledge our sin and our need and our brokenness. We repent. We pray. Did you know that prayer is submission to God? Prayer is repenting. As you repent to the Lord, you are praying. Prayer is submission to the Lord. We acknowledge our need, our sin, our brokenness. We p- pray and we submit and we repent to the living God. And then, like David in verse 5 and 6, we believe truth. We realign, and not through our own effort, because non Christians literally cannot do this. Aside from the Holy Spirit moving in their lives, none of us could do this. But we realign through the blood of Christ back with Jesus. Our thoughts. David shows us what it says in Romans. Uh, Paul, Paul says that, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. What we're praying for here, right? We're howling. What we're praying for is transformation of the heart and, if God pleases, of the situation. But as we're praying for that, Paul tells us to conform our minds to Christ. This does not happen by accident. It happens through the gospel as we go through this process. And I would submit to you that it is not behavior modification because it is not a process that works aside from Christ. Without the gospel, this would just be another exercise. Without the gospel, we wouldn't even know this was possible. But we acknowledge our need, we pray and repent, we submit, and then we believe truth and we are realigned to the Lord. This means that all is not lost, that evil is not actually winning, even though it often feels that way. Our feelings matter, but they should not guide the ship. Our feelings are a thermometer that tells us how we are feeling, but it should not be the thermostat which determines what we believe. You observe a thermometer, you see what temperature it is, And you change a thermostat. You set a thermostat to this temperature that it should be. Whether you're getting up in the morning and it should go down, or you're going to bed at night and it should go also down. (laughs) The thermometer is our feelings. We observe how we are, where we are at. The thermostat is our beliefs. And through the gospel, he, Jesus, realigns with the Holy Spirit our beliefs. And then our feelings follow. Put your faith in the truth, and the feelings will follow. We observe that David goes through this short process in verses 1 through 2, and then again 3 and 4, and all the way here to 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. He did not get there by magic, and he probably did not feel that when he wrote it. If he wrote this in the moment, I can almost guarantee you he did not feel that way immediately. But I have trusted. He looks back. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. God, I'm looking to the truth. Even though I feel this way, I'm looking to what is and what you have done. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David looked forward to the cross in hope. We look back in hope. I will sing to the Lord. He made a decision to sing. He did not make a decision to paint. He did not make a decision to draw. He made a decision to sing. That's partly why we sing, to help through the gospel realign who we are with Christ. We observe how we feel and we reset our beliefs through the gospel in order to change how we feel. God does that. Prayer draws out our hearts and minds to God because it is when we are at our weakest that he is strongest. I'm hoping to beat that into your heads right now. When we are weak, he is strong. When we are weak, that's when we are at our best. To pray, to plead with God, to consider these things And in the end, David says, because he has dealt bountifully with me, bountifully, not well, not just enough, because he's dealt so-so with me, because he's dealt bountifully with me. David is looking forward to the gospel, no matter our suffering. And please do not hear this as a dismissal of the pain that you're in. That no matter our suffering, the Lord has dealt bountifully with us. Through the cross. Heaven is a real place. The cross was a real thing that happened. It has ramifications now for where we are at as we suffer. As we deal with the sin of anxiety. Believe it. Believe in the gospel that he will change you. I would ask you, if you're a Christian, to come and take communion with us. We celebrate the death of and resurrection of Jesus with the blood that was spilt for us on our behalf. We celebrate with the body that was broken for you. And there's a reason we do it every week. And it's because we're sinful. And we go back into the world and we forget. And so come back next week. Hear about the gospel. Be encouraged. And celebrate with us tonight. Come take the cup and take the bread. And believe truth. Let's pray. Jesus, there's not much to say when we suffer other than, please help me. God, you are a good God. I ask that you would give us peace as we deal with our own sin, as we deal with other people's sin, as we deal with the effects of sin. We ask that through the gospel, you would bring us to a real understanding of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to find peace in the Lord and the Lord only. God, David was a man just like us. He suffered just like us. May we find peace in Jesus like he did. And may we work it out with our friends and in our community here at New City. May we be willing to be vulnerable with each other and honest with the Lord as we deal with life. All these things we ask because you are a good king and we do not deserve you. Amen.